0: this episode of the better Two podcast is brought to you by kitty mystic and dm needham author of my days with the dark muse as well as love is worth waiting for hi gang donna here thanks for tuning in to the better Two podcast today's guest is carrie schwer carrie and i sit down and talk about something that Most people don't really consider the gray area. You know, there's black and white, and then there's the gray area. And we don't really think about that when it comes to our vices, our habits. But Carrie, when she was sitting in AA, realized that she didn't quite fit in. And she felt that there was something else that for other people, they needed a different approach. So she started researching, and she found the gray area drinking. And now she's a gray area drinking expert. So we talk about that and we talk about trauma and we talk about the Sabre method. So I think you'll find it very helpful and informative. It's a fun conversation. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm
1: great, Donna. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. It's a little dreary out today, but you know, I'll take it better than a wintry mix. So
1: (laughs) yeah, where are you located?
0: I'm located outside of Chicago and you
1: Oh, okay. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and we got some gorgeous weather today. Oh, so.
0: nice! I've seen yeah. some pictures. Somebody lives down down by the coast on the East Coast, and they're like, "Yeah, outside in the sun." And I'm like, "Well, not yet here," but yesterday we were at 49.
1: Oh, nice! I think we're going up to almost 60 today. So
0: yeah, but then by tomorrow, I think we're going to be in the 20s again with like a negative of nine. So oh, you boy. know. <laughs> the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't like your weather; it'll change. Pretty quick. So let's talk a little bit about because you didn't come here to discuss the weather or where we live. I have a question right off the bat. I know you have a better two moment and it's all about your coach, you know, becoming a coach, but I want to go right to gray area drinking. I have never heard that before that term. Yeah.
1: So gray area drinking is the space between someone who is socially drinking and severely abusing alcohol. It's this wide spectrum of drinkers that exists in between these two extremities. And with a worldwide population of about 2 billion people that consume alcohol, it is estimated about 50% may be in this gray area. So it's a huge number of people. The biggest difference also is really that it it is a choice for gray area drinkers to drink alcohol if they are at a point where they are severely abusing it no longer becomes a choice it becomes something that they have to do in order to get through their day so a gray area drinker really is this just a huge a huge spectrum of drinkers you know and it's it's not so much about there is of course the the question of how much are they drinking per day but it's it's also has a lot to do with Why are they drinking? What is the reason why they're choosing? Is it celebratory? Is it to ease the stress of their day? To numb out? To chill? And most often, we're drinking and using self-sabotaging behaviors to either chase a feeling or escape a feeling. So there's there are some nuances within it. There are some you know I could keep going, but um, you know there are more closer definitions I can share with you.
0: I mean, my my father. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, and as we all know, New Orleans is very much a party town. My my dad, at a certain point, and the, the jury's out because my dad's behaviors, to me, he's a functioning alcoholic or was a functioning alcoholic. He's still alive. But my stepmother says, well, no, your dad's not an alcoholic because he can stop. He stops cold turkey. But his behavior patterns are the same as an alcoholic. Cause he would, in fact, his garage was named Don's garage and social club mm, because nice. at five o'clock when people would pick up their cars, his friends would all come over and they'd bring alcohol and they would have a party almost every day. Yeah. And yeah. as, as an adult to 70 something adult, he tells me that the other day, he's like, well, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and I look at it and I go, well, to me, his behaviors, I mean, if, if, you talk to a therapist, they will tell me that I have the same behavior patterns of a child of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So,
0: so, you know, that's why I asked because the gray Eric gray drinker, it's like, well, is he a great drinker then? Because he does, he can stop cold Turkey.
1: Yeah. It's a really fine line. So I'll, I'll go there then with the definition. So the national Institute on alcohol abuse and alcoholism really is starting to use the term alcohol abuse disorder much more frequently outside of alcoholism. And the reason why is because there are three categories that they have identified for someone who is abusing alcohol. We have a mild, medium, and severe category. So by lack of a you know better definition, somebody who's in the gray area might be in that mild and maybe into the medium category where somebody who's severely abusing is, of course, in that severe category. Category and probably a little bit into the darker shade of that medium. So that's what I'm saying. There's there are some nuances and gray areas within the gray area. So it's it's really comes down to also the identity of what someone wants to claim. And when I say that, I say that very confidently and loosely at the same time, because I went to AA. At first, when I quit drinking, I didn't know anybody like me existed. So I went the traditional route, loved the program. I think it's an amazing program. It's helped millions of people. The problem for me, it wasn't a good fit. I didn't identify as being an alcoholic, nor was I feeling that I was the same as some of the others that were in the room. And that's not a denial or a comparison. It's just where I personally was. And I think AA is great, but it's not for everybody. And there are alternatives. So a gray area drinker typically has not experienced a rock bottom in their life. They haven't had that detrimental thing that has brought them to the place of, oh, I must quit. There's no DUI. There's now loss of a marriage, that sort of thing. So it's it's definitely one of those categories and areas that you could say, yep, it feels like a gray area. That's why it's when I heard the term myself for the very first time in 2018, that's exactly why I chose to go into this business. And it really found me more so than me finding it, which is a story that we'll unpack, I'm sure. But really it was about the opportunity to to tell somebody, hey, if you think you're in the gray area, it's an opportunity for you to do something about it before you get too far into an addiction. And then it's no longer a choice. So that's the main reason, you know, why I like to talk about it.
0: And I think it's a a good thing because I mean, when you, when you're talking about that, you didn't fit in. I mean, sometimes when we go to school, when you think about education, not everybody learn. we we put everybody in this box that you're going to learn this way, but not everybody's capable of learning that way. So you're not going to fit in and you're not going to embrace what is being taught. So the same thing would be true for a self-help program. If you're there and you may be learning and you may be getting the good vibes and everything but if you don't feel like it's right it's not going to totally stick with you.
1: Mhm. That's right. That's right. And you know our identity has a lot to do with with our state of mind. And so the other part of that was, you know, my upbringing was kind of rocky. I had a lot of um in and out trauma. I went to 12 different schools. I was sexually abused. I had all kinds of things happen in my childhood. And I wore that all as a victim badge across my forehead, like, well, this is why things happened to me because of all this stuff happened to me. And therefore, I'm going to justify my behavior and some of the things I do. Well, when I went to AA, I really felt like, oh, one more thing, one more uh, badge of honor that I get to carry around with me. And that's when I was like, no. I'm not accepting this. I'm not accepting it because this is not who I am. It's not who I identify as being. And it was the pivotal point of my life and my career a couple of years later that I wanted to change that. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, what are we believing about ourselves and You know, how we do, you know, look at ourselves in the mirror. Do we have that self confidence? Are we proud of who we are? Or do we associate our identity with what we do or who we're married to or being someone's mom or daughter versus who we are as a person, you know, as being created in this world? You know, it's a big difference. So it's a big piece of the puzzle for people who can really heal is to claim the identity that works for them. And that's a personal thing, Donna. It's really Mm. personal.
0: I've talked about it several times on the show because we we get stuck in labels. And I went through that. I reached the pinnacle of my career as a claim supervisor. Mm. And I wasn't in charge of the whole office. I was in charge of my team. But when I left that job, and because I hadn't been in insurance for so long, I mean, I, I was the type of person that if I saw... I had the stomach flu and there was, we went to the grocery store and somebody had dropped lipstick and smeared it across the floor. And the insurance brain is sitting there going, this is a slip and fall. This is an accident waiting to happen. Now, mind you, I had the stomach flu. We went to go get some prescription that I had to pick up from the doctor. And I'm more looking for somebody in the grocery store to clean this mess up. So somebody doesn't get hurt. And my husband's just like, let the job go. But the whole fact is I identified so strongly with that, that when I was no longer a claims person or a supervisor, I had to figure out who I was. And I think that's something that it used to be, you stayed at a job for 30 years. And then when you retired, you had to find your new identity, Where well, that doesn't happen now. Mm-hmm. We, we are each given these labels. And we, we take these little, dare I say, mantras of who we are, like you said, somebody's parents, somebody's wife, and then we get labeled with it. And that's who we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm now labeled, which is the word I hate, and but it's official. I'm a widow. And to me, that is a dangerous word. And I know people are like, well, how can that be dangerous? It just shows you're grieving. Well, yeah, it shows I'm grieving. It shows that I'm no longer married, that I'm single, that I may have some insurance money that you can come try to scam, which is not the case at all, putting that out there. But you know what I'm getting at? It sets you up for a scam artist. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's an identity.: it's Yes.: an identity.
1: Yeah, The identity piece is really huge, and I'm glad you brought that out because it is true, and we're so much more than that. We're meant to be more than that. You know I have a lot of executive uh, clients, and one of them is, you know, a lot of them are very successful. One in particular owns quite a number of retail stores. And outside of those retail stores, one of the questions I asked him in a session is, "Who are you?" outside of this person for this business. like If we're just talking about you as an individual, who are you? And define that person because we tend to get lost in in who we are and what we do and our behaviors. And we need to be careful with that because our behaviors can change. It's a decision to change the behaviors. And really, if we look at what we do on a daily basis whether it's our habits or or really it's our habits it really does determine our life and the quality of our life and that can change mm-hmm. we have the ability to make those decisions and again if you know someone going back to the alcohol thing if someone is severely abusing and it's no longer a choice meaning that they really need to have the alcohol in order to get through a day. That's a different conversation. That's not the same as being in a gray area and still having the ability to make a choice.
0: Well, and you bring up a very good point. You know, it's about what, what emotions are we trying to avoid? And the thing is that we don't really think about, because I never had an anxiety issue until I hit my forties and I did some amazing things and I was fearless. And then it was like, okay, now I have anxiety. Where did this come from? And part of it, I think, is we bury everything when we're younger. We, Especially if you've been through trauma and you know this, you tend to bob and weave and, okay, I can go. I can do this. It's not a big deal. I'll just tamp it away. But eventually it comes home to roost. And it's up to you on how you want it to to deal with it, if you want to face it or if you want to, to numb it.
1: Exactly. And that's just it. Our feelings dictate our behaviors. So if we don't feel good about something, or we're in a what I call a protective state, meaning we go inward, or we have, um, you know, quote, unquote, negative feelings attached to our emotions, we then can act upon those act out on those because we're trying to fill something or run from something, escape something, or chasing something. And so until we can sit with our feelings and know that it's okay for us to not be okay. It's okay for us to sit with the grief, sit with the anger, sit with the pain, as opposed to acting on it. And by the way, an inaction is the same as an action. So we have to be careful with that too. But you know, we think that we always gotta be doing something to remedy it. And sometimes the answer is to not do
0: anything. Uh, I often look, There's a card because I read cards, the card of the hangman and the hangman is just there hanging out. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't take action, there's still going to be an action that's taken. And it's just a matter of are you in control or are you going to be the victim? That's right. That's right. So let's go back to your journey as to how. So you had this great job, great life. And one day you just decided this isn't working. Uh, (laughs) I (laughs) know. Well, not this isn't working, but I'm just saying something feels off.
1: Yeah, well,
0: it it sort of
1: found me. So make a long story short, I think I I alluded to it already, but in 2016, I was in the medical field and I really was at a place with my drinking and my self-confidence, which was zero, at the time, I came to my own enough. I didn't have a rock bottom, like I said, most gray drinkers don't. And I quit drinking in 2016. Shortly thereafter, leaving AA, I worked with a coach. And that coach said to me three things. He planted three seeds for me. He said, Carrie, I really think someday that you're gonna start your own business. And I think you're going to be a coach. And I think that you're gonna share your story with the world. And I was like, you are smoking some serious crack, dude, because that's never going to happen. I was like, I was like, no, no, and hell no. Well, like all good coaches, he saw something that I couldn't see. That's what coaches do. We see the blind spots in others. And fast forward, it's now the summer of 2018. I'm working at Porsche. I actually started at Porsche um, right after I quit drinking all in 2016. And so I was at Porsche when I worked with this coach. And when he said, you're going to start, you might start your own business someday. I'm like, there's no way. Like, I love working here. I make great money. i It's making really good money. And it was so fun working there. And, uh, you know, it's just great. So I never saw myself leaving. Well, fast forward, 2018, I'm in church with my husband and they were talking about small groups, starting off small groups. And I said to my husband, I want to start a small group. And he goes, great. What are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to get people together that are drinking too much and doing other things too much, you know, really kind of talk about the gray area. And he was like, that sounds great, honey. So I went to the church and of course they were happy to have somebody else start in a small group, but they said, well, you know what? That sounds like recovery. And we already have a recovery group. And I said, but it's not recovery. I said, I'm not talking about recovery. I'm talking about discovery, totally different. And long story short, they poo-pooed the idea. I was really angry, left the church over it. This was September of 18. My girlfriend called me that day. I happened to be at Best Buy. I'm just like, I'm so angry, but I'm in Best Buy. I'm picking up like, you know, some accessories for my phone. And she calls me and she said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I'm so mad. Like I just got off the phone with the church and blah, 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 blah. And she said, girl, Why are you allowing the church to dictate what you want to do? Just start something on your own. And I said, Yeah, I don't need that church. I'll show them. And that's literally how my business got started. It started with the idea of a small group turning into, I'll show the church, which is such a bad way to start a business, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the vengeance. uh, But in all, and just for the record, I'm back at that church and I have been for years, but anyway, I was just upset because I didn't get my way, but what a blessing that it didn't work out because otherwise I wouldn't be here. So I did, I, I started, I, you know, did all the things. I bought the domain name and next thing I know this thing is starting to like take off. And I thought it was just going to be this little side gig thing, you know, meeting up at my house and whatever. And uh, that was September of 18 by May of 19, actually it was April. I said to my husband at dinner table, honey, I think I want to quit my job at Porsche and go all in with gray tonic. And he leans across the table, Donna, and he gets really close to me and he goes, babe, you make like really good money. And I said, I know. And he's like, you really want to do this? I said, I do. He said, okay. So I got the blessing from him and we sucked it up i mean we had to you know cut corners cuz you don't just quit a job no. and make buco dollars it doesn't work like that right it just no. takes a while <laughs> so the first year was interesting and i thought wow this is wonderful like i could do what i could do i could build whatever i want with this and you know, it was a lot to learn as an entrepreneur you know i'm in my coming up i mean now we're in 2022 so it'll be four years this september but it's it's been a roller coaster of figuring things out, but I got to tell you, there's nothing more rewarding. And that's just a complete change for me. I never thought if you would have asked me six years ago, would I be here? I would say you're crazy. Or you'd be smoking some good crack along with my coach. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: I mean, that's sometimes we don't don't see what, you know, you said it, we don't see what others see um, in us. And it's funny because one of my friends last night she said, she said to me, cause I, I live in a small town currently. And she's like, why can't you move to California? Why well, you don't, you're better than where you're at. And, and the funny thing is, here's the funny thing is I had the same conversation back in 1993 when I was married to my first husband, living in a small town with his two kids. And my best friend at the time says to me, and it's not the same person says to me, you're much better and much bigger of a person than where you're at. You have Mm -hmm. more to give to people than where you're at. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like, and I, lately, that's what's been coming up for me. It's like these shades from the past keep coming back and people are verbalizing the same thing. And it's like, you didn't get the message last time. Mm -hmm. So pay attention this time. Yeah. So people see, people see they're capable of seeing us, where we see our limitations and you know yes it might have been bad to have that vengeful thought but sometimes we need that fire lit under us to get us motivated oh yeah
1: and it was it was such a fire i mean it was i couldn't sleep like that first week Mm -hmm. i mean i was just like oh my gosh i'm gonna do this and this and this and this and you know you just it was like a bonfire was lit and uh you know, I still remember thinking I'm just going to shout on top of the rooftops. And what has happened over the course of the time being in business is that it's shifted to all things gray. So now I really talk about all things in the gray area, whether that's our marriages or our relationships or with our careers, for example. So a lot of my clients are seeking me out, not just because they might have something like they're drinking too much from time to time, but it could be that. You know, they're cheating on their wife because they're no longer satisfied, or they're in a corporate job that they hate because they feel handcuffed because they make too much money and, you know, they got the pension and the vacation and they're afraid now they're in their 50s. And if they leave, they're too close to retirement. And how will that work? And, you know, all the things. So it's working out all of those gray areas in their life. And oh, yeah, we're going to help you love yourself so you don't have to self sabotage with any behaviors that are causing you damage. So
0: I think for so long that we are taught though, to self-sabotage because we are taught by whether it be parents or teachers in most cases, not all cases, some parents are very supportive, but we're taught, you think you can do that? Really? You're, you're not, you're not that good. You know, then, then you have other parents that are very super supportive.
1: Yeah. You know, there's a story I want to share there, which is important. I believe, um, You're right. I think we've been taught the first way that you described instead of the latter. But if you're familiar with Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, the company Spanx for women, she has a wonderful story about her and her father. And her dad would ask her every day at the dinner table, what did you do wrong today? What did you fail at? And if she did not have something to bring to the table, he was legitimately upset with her. He wanted her to find the failures in her day so he could use that as a learning opportunity for her to strengthen her. And what it did was it empowered her to the point that she knew she could do anything she put her mind to, that failure was only part of the process of moving forward in life. And I think we've got it wrong. And a perfect example of this timely example is we're just closing out the Winter Olympics and if anybody's been following it, there was a 15-year-old Russian ice skater that is absolutely phenomenal. As a matter of fact, they told her, were mentioning that they think that she's the best skater that has ever skated. Wow. And she was near perfect. Um, she, Her first solo, she got the highest score ever, amazing, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward a couple of days, the news came out that there was some doping <coughs> drugs found in her system back in December, and the committee said they were reviewing whether or not she should skate. So, of course, now you got this huge scandal that one of the best skaters ever might not be able to skate because of possible doping scandal. Well, it turns out nobody knows how she got this substance in her system back in December. It wasn't anything that she was currently taking or anything like that. They're not sure if it was planted, whatever. The point is, it got in this girl's psyche. And so now she's back on stage. Everyone, you know, half the world is against her even competing, saying she shouldn't have been allowed to compete. So what do you think that did for this poor girl? You're not. Yeah. yeah. She fell multiple times. This is a girl that could do these quadruple flips and all her, you know, twists and turns in her sleep and fell multiple multiple times she comes off the ice and you know what the first thing her coach says to her you didn't try hard enough can you imagine now there's two schools of thought to this and this is a lot of the work that I do with my clients is that you know we have a lot of childhood trauma and this is a 15 year old by the way I just want to put that out this girl's a child yeah we have a lot of trauma when we're children whether we Think of it as a big T trauma, like, you know, major stuff like abuse or whatever. But we also have small T trauma and the small T trauma is just as damaging to us as a big T trauma. And this is one of those instances, What I don't even know if I can say it's a small T. That's a big deal for this girl. We put on stage with all this pressure and then still told after she falls multiple times, you should have tried harder. Why didn't you try harder? It's just absolutely terrible how this girl was treated. So I think there's something to be said about Sarah Blakely's father. Hey, what'd you fail at today? I'm excited to know. And if she didn't have something, he was legitimately upset with her because he wanted to g- give her the opportunity for her to fail forward. That's how we learn. And that's how we grow.
0: My, my mother was notorious for saying, you can do anything you put your mind to, but hold that thought. Two minutes later, one day you're going to fall flat on your face. And I hope I'm there to say it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, what?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a whiplash thing. And, you know, when you're talking about the, the skater, it's like you have to look at fame too. I mean, people that are in power, whether it's fame, celebrity, or being, you know, an owner of multiple businesses, mm-hmm. there's a certain notoriety and there's a certain echelon. I remember when I got with my first husband, his parents and his grandparents, we went to go visit them for the first time. And they're telling me how they prayed to God for me and how they were so thrilled that I was there for Brian and the girls and how everything was so wonderful and blah, 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 blah. Well at 22, that's a lot of pressure to put me put on you. And four years later, it was kind of like, I love the kids and I love the family, but I wasn't happy in my marriage. But to leave that, it was like, I was leaving all of that. And that was kind of like, you're descending. You're being mm-hmm. ripped off that pedestal. And now it's like, I always feared that they were going to hate me. My mother-in-law eventually, her and I talked. And she's like, no, I understand why you left. Mm-hmm. And so did the kids. But when you're in that echelon, whether it be you're at a job for 30 years or whatever, that that's a pillar that once that's pulled down, your ego and your identity is is where. And this girl that you're talking about, the skater, is she going to be now known as the girl who messed up? Is this Mm -hmm. going to haunt her kind of like Britney? We deal with Britney Spears. I mean, she was at the pinnacle of her success till everybody Mm -hmm. started stalking her.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: And you expect these people to be perfect, but the problem is with this, we're all human.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that we're not perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's something to be said about that. And I think, you know, that's one thing that a lot of people have in common with their, their low self-esteem or their low self-confidence is a lot of feeling like they're an imposter, that they're just not good enough. And this happens to me. I mean, I talk a lot about uh, you know multiple subjects and I'm doing a YouTube video just yesterday. I'm recording one and halfway through the video, I just stopped and I, I kind of drew a blank and I was like, are you qualified to do this? You know, and I mean it still haunts me at times. And yes, I'm qualified. This is what I've been studying for years. I mean, I've, you know, got a lot of education behind it. And but yet there's still times I'm like, wait a minute, am I still the expert on this? Am I an expert on this? Do I have the the knowledge and the know-how to actually talk about this? So this self- imposter syndrome that we do and the self-sabotaging happens even to the best of us. I don't care how much self-development work you have, you're still gonna have those those moments where these limiting beliefs and the inner voices come back because they've been running the show for so many years that they're going to find their way back into your mind. And it's a, it's a way of taking control of them and looking at those thoughts and saying, is that really true? Or could there be something else that is true and taking a moment to walk through that process? Cause it happens. You know, it's very habitual for us. So yeah, we, yeah it's like a muscle. You have to keep building it. it was, so I caught myself in that moment and I was like, Yes, of course you dumb dumb. Like, you know, and I had to sit down and breathe through it and really t- you know, get my my game back into it, but those those voices out of nowhere can come and it just can crippleize, you know, you and really you know, make you feel less than.
0: Well, I think with imposter syndrome there's components to it that we don't look at. I mean, the the component component of anxiety that is tied to imposter syndrome, there's the component of fear. Because there's the fear of, oh, my gosh, what if somebody finds out that I'm not who I'm say I am?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so therefore, the ego comes into play of we're going to reel you back in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly.
0: So it's a big, it, you know, it's for such a little statement of fear. It's imposter syndrome. Nobody ever really digs deep. We, we put the label and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's like there's so much more to it. and That's what we have to work on and get past it.
1: Yeah. Well, anytime we have those two incongruent thoughts going on in our head, which happens all the time, it's like the angel and the devil on either side of the shoulder and I talk about this not just with imposter syndrome or but also like with drinking for example is that when you know you want something, but you probably shouldn't have it, and your mind is going back and forth with these two incongruent fighting, uh, debating thoughts, it's really cognitive dissonance that we're dealing with. And we're not sure, like, what, what should we be listening to? You know, what voice should we be listening to in this moment? And it can really bring us into a negative state if we're not careful. So, like, acknowledging what that is, you know, saying the word stop, is a good way to give yourself some pause and time to look at it, acknowledge what you're thinking, taking a couple of deep cleansing breaths, embracing that you're human, and finding a way to redirect your thoughts by making a new decision. By the way, that what I just said to you is that my SABER method is an acronym, S-A-B-E-R. So it's STOP, acknowledge, breathe, embrace, and redirect, it's a way for you to move out of that negative protective state and into more of an expansive, powerful state. So that's one tool that I teach my clients and it works for any situation that you have cognitive dissonance. So, yeah.
0: Thank you for that tip. And on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And we're back. So I thank you for the tip. I want to talk a little bit about your book, The Successful Mind Tools to Living a Purposeful, Productive, and Happy Life.
1: Yes. I'm one of many authors. I'm one of many co-authors in that book. And the book is designed not to read front to cover. It is really meant to read like, you know, what are you struggling with in this moment and finding a chapter that really resonates with you. And ironically, The Sabre Method, which I just shared with you, is my entire chapter so i talk about that as and i don't call it the saber in the actual chapter it, the chapter is living in the gray a power struggle within because we all deal with these power struggles within our mind and how do we deal with that and i share my story how the saber method came to be in that chapter which is really my experience at the grocery store after being two years alcohol free walking in and seeing a bottle of wine And my mouth started watering immediately just by seeing that. And if anybody's familiar with the book, Power of Habit, or even Atomic Habits, you'll know that there's four steps to a habit being created. And the first one is a cue. Well, this was a visual cue for me, seeing the wine. Now I'm coming off a a rough day at work. I was still working at Porsche at the time. Rough day at work. It was, you know, I was hungry. I wanted to go home. I was very tired and I was a little angry over the day. Um, and so I had a couple things happening in my mind and that old familiar pattern that had been there for years came flooding back into the forefront of my, ex- my brain and saying, Hey, hey, there's your favorite glass of wine. You can solve all of your problems. And you know what, Carrie, you deserve it. You mm-hmm. should go ahead and get that bottle of wine. And so I'm standing there, my mouth literally puckering, and watering, which the thought of just having this glass of Chardonnay with my seafood dinner, which is why I was in the grocery store in the first place, seemed so appealing. And then I have the conflicting thoughts going on. What are you freaking crazy? Like you haven't drank in two years? Like what is your problem? Like you can't do that? Like are you like what's going on? Like stop it! Blah, 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 blah. I literally yelled stop in the middle of the grocery store, and I of course looked around like people are going to think I'm a weirdo. But what I noticed in that moment was it created space. Mm-hmm. It created a moment. Neurologically, this works so well. It is based on neuroscience because when you say stop, it cuts off your thinking to your rational part of your brain. And it gives you a moment to, to take a step back and look. So I acknowledged those th- the thoughts at the time. I looked at my thinking and I was like, wait a minute, I really don't want this wine. I don't drink anymore. Like I had to go through the process of looking Mm -hmm. at my thinking and asking, is this true? Or could there be something else that is true? And then I naturally took a couple deep breaths. It was like, without me even thinking about it, I just started breathing some deep deep breaths. And I thought, okay, well that calmed me down. And then I was like, you know what? I'm human. Like, of course this is going to happen. I embraced my situation by giving myself grace. I mean, I'm not perfect. And then I redirected my thinking by having gratitude and saying, no, I'm here to get my fish and I'm going to go get my club soda and cranberry that I came in to have with my dinner and I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat. I'm going to take care of my needs. So that has, that's how Sabre came to be. And it was really, I felt like given to me as you know an, a tool, which is what I've been teaching now for a while, but that is the majority of my chapter is the Saber method and the Saber flow, but it is a really awesome book. It's written by many other authors that are extreme, uh, extremely intelligent and really amazing experts in their field.
0: I have a friend who's going through not the same similar thing. She's quitting smoking. Uh, and it is similar. She, she said she's, she was four days, four days smoke free, which isn't much. And she tells me, she's like, I just, I, I had to have a cigarette. So she's like, I went out there And I smoked half of it and it was just nasty. She's like, I was thinking I was going to get a baked potato or something. And I'm like, and you got, (laughs) and you got a soggy fry. And then like, wait, no, no, no. You got a soggy cafeteria fry from high school. That's cold and just nasty. She goes, yeah, that's exactly what it was. She's like, it wasn't what I wanted anymore. I'm like, that happens. I said, when I quit going to McDonald's, the next time I went, which was like six months later, it was just, mm mm-mm sorry, McDonald's, but it just didn't taste the same. I think yeah. our body picks up on those cues that I don't want this anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cues are there, you know, visual or audible cues we can have, which drives the trigger or the mm-hmm. craving for it to start to happen, which is what happens. So the the visual cue of seeing the wine, then the trigger happened, which was a craving. So my mouth started watering, like mm-hmm. I said, And then immediately, the reason why we have the triggers, because we're already anticipating the reward and the reward is because I deserve it and I like the way it tastes and I want it. And I know that alcohol is going to make me feel better if I just drink, you know, this is all the, the BS talking in the background. And then of course, from that, we have the actual, we respond to it. We have the result, which is we go for it or we don't go for it in my case. But that's how a habit's born because if there's no reward attached to it, there always has to be a reward to the habit. And so again, I'm going to reference two books, The Power of Habit and also Atomic Habits. They talk about that in detail because this is how habits are formed. And when we can see that we can cut this off and we can disrupt it, which is what the Saber method does, it will cut off that that thinking. It'll, It'll disrupt that pattern. But triggers can be so powerful. Like you brought up McDonald's it reminds me of my very first job was at Burger King and I worked in the kitchen at 15 years old. And so my job was to make the fries and wrap up the burgers and all the things. And and then my second job after that was Dunkin' Donuts. So to this day, I don't eat donuts and I don't go to Burger King, but every time I pass and I'm 55 to give you reference. So we're talking 40 years. If I drive past a Burger King and I smell the, the you know how you can smell yeah, it. They yeah, have like yeah, yeah. It's, it smells delicious, by yeah. the way, because you know you can smell the burger cooking. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it. The moment I smell that smell, my my brain goes right back to the fries and this and like the greasy feeling that I felt working there. And, and the it smell. brings and it brings back memories, bad memories, because I had a, a a terrible boss who was a coke addict at the time. Which oh, that was a whole other story. But it brings back these horrible, it's like PTSD, which by yeah. the way, is trauma. So it brings back these, you know, almost PTSD for me. And that's how powerful triggers and cues can be. Mm-hmm. And that's, so I want to say something about your friend, anybody who's listening, who's tr- trying to quit anything, but particularly smoking. I smoked for 37 years, so I know this well. What helped me quit was w- we, we want to look for something that's going to replace it until we get... Through and create new neural pathways, new ways of thinking. And so one of the things that I did was I just pretended to smoke. So I would pretend I had my cigarette between my two fingers. I would bring it out to my mouth. I'd take a breath in. I'd blow out the breath. I would actually do the, the movement of me smoking. And that alone helped me go through the process in my brain that I was actually rewarding myself with a cigarette Just by breathing in and breathing out. Well, when I was doing this, this is before I knew what I know now about the brain and how habits work. But knowing that the breath is a way for us to calm our central nervous system and move us into a parasympathetic state, this is why that worked for me. So I encourage anybody and your friend, if they are getting these urges to still wanting to smoke, is just to go through the act of smoking. With nothing and just breathing in and out the air a couple times. Sometimes I had to sit with it for five minutes and do it. Other times I just, you know, a couple little breaths and I was good to go. But that's something that I think works really, really well at times for for most people. It can really help.
0: You know, you bring up trauma triggers, and yes, we have a lot of trauma triggers. I mean, and that's what a lot of people don't realize. They're like, oh, I've dealt with that emotion. It's not going to bother me anymore. Hold my hat, <laughs> you know. Let me get hold my beer. Let me go get you here. And sure, something will trigger you and bring you right back to that moment of where you were. And I don't think people realize that enough. I think they think, well, I've dealt with it. It's not going to come back, but it does. Um, do you see a lot of people with internet addiction?
1: No, not so much with the internet, but um, you know, our phones have become a huge problem. That's kind and, of what and- I have. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the scrolling, so social media, then the number one addiction that we have outside of sugar is the like button. You know, we're very much addicted to knowing and looking for that like, and it's validation. You know, social media has done great things for our society, but it's done a lot more damaging, in my opinion, um, thanks to our psyche and to our self-esteem. And the way that it hasn't really brought us together, it's actually driven us farther apart and we need to be careful with that, especially our kids today. You know, we—I'm a big um, um, advocate for suicide prevention. I have uh, quite a few friends that have lost their kids and that work for NAMI and so forth, and which is a great nonprofit for mental illness. But when we look at the kids that have taken their life, it usually will have to do with either bullying in school or cyberbullying or things along the, that nature, and they don't—they just don't feel enough. There's this lack, and my heart is really for those kids because that's where I was. You know, thank God I didn't grow up with social media. I probably would have taken my life. I'm sure I would have because I was just in such a bad place. I mean, I was beaten so badly in seventh and eighth grade, especially eighth grade. My parents didn't even recognize me when they picked me up. And it was very hard to be that kid that was bullied continuously and going to 12 different schools in nine years, you know, it was really difficult. So I think social media would have made things so much more complicated for me. So I'm glad that I didn't grow up in that, in that culture at the time, you know, it was hard enough, but I, you know, today we got to deal with so much of that. And, you know, I can't knock social media, but so much, because that's clearly a lot how I get, I get my business as people resonate with my posts and so forth. But, you know, if I could, if, if we could, if I could choose to have a world with it or without it, I'd, gladly go without <laughs>
0: well, I'm, i mean we're trained to hear the bing on our phone right i mean we always joked about path lost dog but aren't we doing the same thing with our phones now oh I mean, my god hear the ding it's yeah. like oh wait okay and you know talking about t- suicide there was a, a gentleman that i interviewed he's 20 i think 22 by now but i interviewed at the beginning of my first or second season of my show and at 14, he decided he really wasn't happy. Actually, it was sooner than that. But at 14, he's like, I'm going to get the perfect Facebook picture. I'm going to get the perfect Facebook picture, and my year will be golden and everything. And he got his picture, but he still felt hollow. Mm-hmm. So he, he was very good about sneaking out of the garage. And so he opened up the garage window, climbed out. But, and usually he would leave it open, but this night he closed it. And this was in Australia. And he climbed on top of a uh, shopping center. And then took a leap off of it that left him paralyzed. He survived. Oh wow! But eventually, he realized that he was looking outside of himself instead of looking inside, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of gave him this wake-up call. So now, yes, he's a he's a speaker, and actually, he's getting some use back with his legs.
1: Oh, thank goodness! Yeah. That's good. It's to been hear. a lot
0: of work, but. I mean, he's like, I look at that now and go, and he's like, when I go out and speak to these kids, they're like, yeah, I understand. That's where I, I, I feel like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's the thing about social media. While it's great, the person, it, uh, I think for the mature person, they can handle getting, we'll say your video goes viral. And then the next video doesn't. I think a mature person can handle that. But a kid, they want that validation so bad. Yeah. And so there's this ebb and flow of highs and lows and at what point do you just feel like a failure because my videos aren't getting traction. Mhm. Mhm. So how exactly. Do they, yeah. How do they deal with that?
1: Well, you know, I hate to say it but a lot of this is the responsibility of the parents but if the parents have not been taught any of this too understanding how the psyche of the brain works especially as children if there's any parents that are listening, and you know your kids, especially if they're under the age of seven, everything that you say and they experience is when their, their brains are forming factual, what they believe is factual beliefs about a situation. I'll give you a really good, easy example. If you and your husband or spouse are arguing about money and they see that, they might associate money brings people or drives people apart, that money's bad. And they may end up having an issue with money later on in life. Or say they want to meet somebody at the playground and that person doesn't show up, they might, they might equate that to, I'm just, I'm not a good friend. This person doesn't like me. I'm not enough. So what seems like innocent and small could really become damaging to their psyche, especially if they can if they experience this over and over again and it becomes like solidified to them as their truth. Yeah. And then they, they live with this and then it just compounds because now once you believe something and you experience it again, you're like, your brain says, see, you were right. There it is again. It's more evidence. And this well, is how we form limiting beliefs. Well,
0: That's one thing. My, my friend down in California, street was talking about the fact that as a kid, how we're socialized is how we are as an adult. You know, it, it forms our belief system, it forms it forms who we are, whether we, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, it's the old adage of one day your kids are going to be just like you are. Um, and we, we think, oh, no, I'm never going to be like that. But then when you have children and something slips out of your mouth, you're like, oh, no, no, I sound just like them. And mm-hmm. it's not intentional, it's subconscious.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's, it's uh, unconscious. Our brain was designed to survive, not thrive. And this is why we're, our brain is so smart about uh, taking something that we've learned and putting into more like a bite-sized shortcut. You think of a computer, we have shortcuts on our computer. This is how habits are formed, in other words, and our beliefs. So they're stored in your unconscious mind so we can, we can survive. But what happens is, you know, when we have something like a memory, like a bad memory, you know, it's, it it's hidden back there. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're clicking on it. Like you would on a computer to bring it to the forefront. And then there it is, It pops up this big window. It's, you know, it's such a great analogy, our brains with a computer and the hard drive and the software, it's virtually very similar to that. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. And especially what we're saying to ourselves, And, you know, as during the interview, I, I said at some point when I was doing my video that I said, uh, you know, dumb, dum." like I called myself dum dumb. And as soon as I said it, I'm like, I didn't really say that, but I wanted to call that back out because just saying that out loud is detrimental. What mm-hmm. we say out of our mouth, we are actually living that experience. So if you're that person that's like, oh, I'm so lazy. I can't do it right. I'm always that person. I'm always late. I'm always late. You know, one of those, pe- like I used to say that all the time, or like, you know, I just don't have patience or I'm I'm not the organized type, you know, I'm more the like, I'll do what I want kind of type. Whatever you're verbalizing about yourself is your reality. And so mm-hmm. we need to be careful of what we're saying about ourselves out loud to ourselves internally and to others. And our languaging has a lot to do with with our beliefs as well.
0: Well, and, and one thing that I've become aware of and I've talked about on the show before is the fact that there's traumas that you had as a kid that you keep buried. And I I know that there have been repressive memory things, but I'm not talking about repressive memories necessarily. I'm talking about as a kid, we, we painted this picture of a protective truth. Mm-hmm. And then as an adult, we look at it and go, wait a second. No, 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 no. Because I, I go back to a physical fight I had with my stepfather. That's how I used to label it. We had a physical altercation. When I hit my 40s, we were watching something on TV. And somebody was going to be charged with attempted murder for trying to strangle somebody. And it was like, all of a sudden, this the, the curtain pulled back and said, let's really look at what happened. And my stepfather had his hands around my throat. Well, what would that be? Would that be a physical altercation or would that be... And so it was like, I unpacked that and I'm like, well, it's true. It's That's what it was. But my mind at the time, and I was 20, at the time, my mind said, no, you can't deal with this. We'll paint it this way because it's much more protective of you.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. You bring up a very good point. We are. So when I said about a protective state, that's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. We are very good at protecting ourselves from any danger. So if that means we have to go inward and self-sabotage or we move back into an experience, it's a way for that smaller, younger version of ourselves to protect our adult selves. That's very common. There's some modalities that you can really start to heal Um you know, for, for deep trauma, that's not work of a coach. That's more of a therapist, mm-hmm. but there are some good, great coaches out there that will help you identify your limiting beliefs. That's something I do, but to take it a step further, there's EMDR with a the therapist. There's also somatic breathing, which is um, I have a couple coaches that work directly with me, with my clients, and I bring them in to do somatic breathing, which is just so healing because you're oxygenating yourself so much that you're actually moving a lot of the trauma out of your body. But one of my favorite modalities is tapping. If Mm -hmm. anybody has familiar with tapping, I've worked with a tapping coach. Uh, She's actually part of my team now and tapping works beautifully because it is directly speaking to your unconscious and uh, giving a, a quick example of a memory that I had of sexual abuse and it was very painful And we tap through that. And what happened was I no longer have any emotional ties to the memory, but I still have the memory. The memory will always be there, but the emotional pain and the ties are no longer there through the process of tapping. So there's a lot of modalities that you can start to heal yourself. So know that those are out there.
0: Yeah, I I was talking to a therapist the other day and we were talking about traumas and everything. And she's like, you know, you can do name it, claim it, tame it.
1: Mm, yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: And I, I don't think we, I don't think most of the time we want to name it or claim it because it's like, that's an icky part of ourselves. You know, the sh- people in metaphysical work talk about the shadow side and the truth yes. is the shadow side is not, it's not anything bad. It's just basically your baggage that you need to face. And sometimes we don't want to do it, but that's what heals us.
1: Yes, absolutely we got to go through it and you know i'll I'll say this as a summary is everything that happened in my life I really look at happened for me and I don't look at it you know, I used to think it happened to me that was the victim the victimhood that I claimed you know this this is why I'm the way that I am you know like you want a bad person, you're gonna get one you want a bad girl that you know drops out of school or like gets in a fight, you're gonna get her right Well when I realized that all those things, were the setup for what I get to do today. I mean, everything that I coach on, even, including you know mm-hmm. having a marriage that was uh, rocky. There, this is one you know one area that I love to coach my clients on it, is with the relationships. All of that happened, I believe, for me to be in the position that I am today to be able to help other men and women who are going through the same struggles. And now I look at it as like, was it a kind of a weird blessing of course yes that's exactly it because that's how life works life is always working for us we just need to find the gifts that are hidden behind all of it
0: exactly and that's that's why i look at you know i wouldn't be able to do the podcast had i not gone through some of the stuff i've gone through yeah because i wouldn't be able to talk to people about the multitude of subjects i get to talk about so exactly completely understand so is there anything that we haven't covered carrie
1: Oh, gosh, I don't know. We've, we've talked a lot of great, this is a great conversation. We covered a lot today. And I just want to let people know, it doesn't matter what gray area you might find yourself in. There are so many gray areas that you can be in. There's a way out. There's an opportunity for you. It is not doom and gloom. Your life doesn't have to be living in a fog that you have the opportunity to live the life that you really want to have. It is possible.
0: Well, I thank you, Carrie, for coming on and sharing the Sabre Method. And uh, thanks. Thank you. So I hope you guys took notes about the Sabre Method. If not, go back and re-listen, because I think it is something that helps us. I mean, we all have those negative thoughts that come into play and come into our head. And it's like, how do you stop them? You know, whether we admit it or not, our past traumas and even our negative self-talk can sit there and feed our fears, fear our worries, feed our worries. And how do we get that to stop? Is it as simple as saying stop? Carrie says so. And, you know, honestly, I guess the next time I have that moment, I will do exactly what she said and say, stop really loud. Maybe not really loud if I'm in a public place, but then again, if I have, you know, they may think I'm on my phone. Who knows? Anyway, so I think that we all can benefit from looking at our habits and trying to break our habits. I think that the I don't smoke, but I think for somebody with a smoking addiction, that would be a helpful tool. And I will pass it along to my friend that I was speaking of. I think that we need to heal our trauma, and that's something that is kind of hard to do, but we need to face it. And we need to confront our shadow side, whether we admit that we have one or not, but we have to heal those traumas. That way we can move on into a better space in our life. So, on that note, I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you want to be a guest on the show or you have a question, comment, or concern, please reach out. You can leave us a message at Donna, D A U N A, at BetterToPodcast.com. That's Donna at BetterToPodcast.com. If you miss an episode and want to catch up while they are available on other platforms, you can find all the episodes at BetterToPodcast.com plus all our social media links. And we also have a Patreon app, you know. Subscription you can get while you're there if you want to support the show. So, and if you want to leave a review for the show, you can do so on Pod Chaser or Apple Pod, Apple.com. And like I said, I hope you enjoy the show and I hope you have a wonderful, great day, evening, whenever you're listening. And uh, I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. <music> The Better Two podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.